you've ever taken three attempts to plug a USB in, click the subscribe button. What's up, everyone? My name is Mike, and welcome to the Premier Aerodynamics Podcast. Today, we're talking about cactus-inspired aerodynamics. That's right. There's a cactus out there that has some pretty cool aerodynamics going on, and that's what we're looking at today. The name of the cactus is the giant Segawara cactus. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but whatever. I might be butchering it. And it's the quintessential cactus you see in all the Hollywood movies, where it's the the uh, trunk in the middle and those limbs coming up sort of like a person. And the paper that um, details this aerodynamic feature is called the mitigation of vortex induced vibration of cylinders using cactus shaped cross sections in subcritical flow. And we'll be looking at that a little bit later. So to give you an idea of what this flow control device is, it's supposed to be transferable to cylinders because the cactus itself is sort of like cylinders all stacked upon each other. I've, never, I've had a lot of cactuses in my lifetime, but never the giant Segawada one. I've never actually seen one in real life either. And one of my major life goals is to see one one day. So I'm dreaming big. <laughs> anyway, so I'll give you a, a bit of a picture of what this cactus looks like. Let me get the paper up here. Okay. So the paper here, as you can see, and then on figure one, this is what they look like. So it's the quintessential cactus you see in movies. And it's quite girthy. You can see the guy in there could even fit inside the cactus. It wouldn't even know it. But yeah, they grow to about 11 meters tall, so 35 foot big. I've seen bigger. Anyway, so the flow control device that uh, this cactus has is uh, these bumps around the outside. So this is a cross-section cut of the cactus near its root, just near the base in the soil. And it looks like a regular cylinder, except it has all these bumps along the outside. And these bumps form ridges all the way up the cactus. And what got these researchers' attention to begin with was that this cactus is so big, but it has such a shallow root system and they thought that, well, if the root system is so shallow, it's not going to have a lot of stability when a very strong winds come up. And this is found in deserts, these cacti. So there's gonna be very strong winds coming all the time and they still stay upright. So they investigated these ribs to see what they do to the flow. So to give you an idea of uh, cylinder flow to begin with, let's say this pen here, a regular big pen, is a cylinder, it's approximately a cylinder, it has some edges, but let's say it's completely circular for now. When, and I'm pretty sure you most, most of you know that when the flow uh, hits a cylinder and the cylinder acts like a bluff body, so you get this von Karman street typically forming, which is just effectively, the flow goes around on one side or separate and then roll up into a vortex, and then the flow on the other side will roll up into a vortex periodically and it would uh, fluctuate in this pattern one side then the other side, then one side and back and forth. And what that roll-up does is create this force. So anytime that the flow separates, there's this imbalance in the force on the cylinder and it'll move from one side to the other and back and forth. And that creates a, something called a vortex-induced vibration or VIV for short. And we actually have a good flow control device that can get rid of VIV. It's been around for like, 50 years, maybe longer, and it does a really good job. It's called a helical strike. And you can see them even like if you go for a walk in maybe an industrial area of your city, you might see some uh, chimneys or some smokestacks or whatever, 
and sometimes you'll see these coils on the outside of them and they're helical strakes. So if, you, if you've never seen one of these, just imagine thinking of a screw, like a regular screw, screw into wood, and that helical section on the outside, that's effectively a strake. It's just got a very small pitch, so there are lots of loops going around. Most of the time, strakes, uh, there might be two or three loops going up the entire uh, cylinder. And I'll show you a picture of what they look like. So this is just a, a typical picture of two cylinders. For those of you listening at home, it's, um, they're just two cylinders with this um, wire effectively going around the outside, a few loops from the bottom to the top. And helical strakes are quite effective. They can cut out like up to 99% of the vortex-induced vibration. So that's very effective. Um, this flow control device, however, it acts in a slightly different way to how helical strakes work. And we'll get into that in a, in a little while. But first, let's talk about um, how helical strakes work. So as I mentioned, it's the coil around the outside. And if you don't have a coil, what happens is the flow hits the pen and or the cylinder, depends the example that I'm using, and it will start to separate on one side. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but where, when it comes to a bad thing is that the flow separates at the exact same time at the exact same location. Now, what that results in is all this force being produced in the same um, region in the same direction, and that's going to uh, summate and push the cylinder to one side, creating a force. And, and that um, start of the vibration, because the vibration needs to go back and forth. But then when the flow separates on the other side, then the resulting force pushes it to the other side, and that's when you get the full vibration effect happening. So this is effectively what's called a coherent separation, when all the flow on one side separates at the same time in the same location. It's called coherent. That's a, a fairly um, important term in aerodynamics, and you can use it in other situations as well when things happen together in the same sort of um, setting. Now, helical strikes, on the other hand, they break up this coherent shedding. So, what they do is with that um, screw like feature around, they um, let me get that picture up once again quickly. So, with this um, coil around, you're no longer going to be getting separation at the exact same location along the side of the cylinder. So you might get some flow separating a little bit towards the front of the cylinder. You might have some separating around the back to the side. So the force is no longer in the exact same direction, the vector, when you summate it. It's in all different directions. And on one side, it could separate sooner than um, on the other side. So you can actually get all the force in the same general direction. It can cancel out. And that's what makes helical strikes so effective. Now, these uh, ribs on this cactus, they're very different. And I'll get into how they've uh, looked into this. So in this, in this um, paper, they had a really good um, research approach. So they used CFD with experiments really well. Like when you use CFD with experiments, often it's really easy to um, think oh, I need to make my CFD so good, really high fidelity, so then it can sort of um, shed so much light onto what's going on and then your experiments might come in and show some other things. Um, that's great, except often it's so computation expensive, it takes so much time and so much CPU power just to do a CFD uh, simulation that you can't do so many of them. What these people did was um, they wanted to use CFD to look at um, all the different parameters. So with these 
um, ribs, you can either have lots of these ribs spaced around the cylinder, or you can have just a few, or you can have very um, small ones, so the amplitude isn't very large, or very large amplitude ones. And they wanted to figure out, well, which ones are going to be better. And so they use CFD as a preliminary analysis um, to figure that out. And what they did was they looked at um, 2D CFD. So they just took one cross section, put it into the plane, and then uh, ran the CFD on that. And to set it up, they did all the, the usual stuff like you know mesh independence study, Y plus below one. Uh, they used the for the turbulence modeling. They used um, RAN, so the turbulence modeling. They used the SSD K Omega, and uh, that's actually quite good. Like um, they could have gone with like K, K epsilon or whatever, but even SST, but SST K Omega is very good in this situation because uh, one, it's very laminar. So the title of the paper I mentioned before was um, in subcritical flow. So subcritical flow is when the flow is laminar. It hasn't transitioned to turbulent yet. Now, using other RANS turbulence model, modeling like K-Omega or even K-Epsilon and uh, SST, they're usually not good at the best of times. So using SST, K-Omega, that is actually quite decent. And they ran these simulations on uh, like quite a few different geometries. I'll go into them shortly. And if we look into figure five, which is where the juicy stuff starts to happen, I'll get down to figure five here. So this, that was just the mesh up there, a typical mesh. Anyone who's just listening to this, um, typical mesh that you see where it's very refined upstream, downstream, and to the sides, and then you have the boundary layer mesh happening here. So nothing too, too out of the ordinary. The figure five is the, um, where they calculated the lift coefficient, the drag coefficient, and the Schrull number of these cylinders with the different um, cacti ribs on there. So in each one of these figures, they have a straight line, straight solid black line here for the, the smooth cylinder, and then the, uh, the different symbols there for the different um, cactus ribs. Now, as drag coefficients were numbers referred to, with the lift coefficient, that's effectively the vortex-induced vibration component of the flow, because the lift is always acting perpendicular to the oncoming stream, and that's what's producing that force in for the vibration. The drag coefficient is just the bending back of the cylinder, so it's acting in the same direction as the free stream flow. And the Schrull number, if you're not familiar with the Schrull number, it's effectively just a way of non-dimensionalizing the frequency shedding or the frequency of whatever's happening. So um, in this particular case, it's the flow coming around the cylinder and separating. Now, the different configurations that they used for the cactus ribs, uh, they had N, which here, which was the number of ribs going around. And when you have eight, they all spaced around equidistantly. So when you have eight, they're still completing the entire circle around the cylinder. It's just that they're spaced further apart and the, so the pitch is greater. And then went up to 24, so three times the amount. So the pitch became very um, small. And then they tested a few in between. And then they also looked at the different diameters, the different uh, amplitudes of the of the um, ribs and they reference it to the diameter of the cylinder. So they went anywhere from 2% of the diameter in the amplitude to 8%. So that meant that for the biggest uh, diamond, for the biggest amplitudes, the entire cylinder with these ribs around there was actually 
greater diameter than just a smooth cylinder. And that's something that's uh, important to note because the characteristic lengths that they used in these figures to non-dimensionalize the parameters to get to this coefficient, the drag coefficient, and the straw number, they used the reference length for the smooth cylinder, regardless of whether it's a smooth cylinder or the one with the cactus uh, flow control device. Now, I'm not too sure why they did it. They said so they could compare more directly, but we'll get into that in a second. What you can notice here is that in figure 5a, the pretty much any um, appearance of these flow control devices dramatically reduced lift. Now, there are a couple uh, configurations that didn't, but by and large, they all did, and by a lot. Like when you look at when they had 16 or even 20, 24 of these ribs going around, the lift coefficient dropped it by like half. So it dramatically reduced the VIF. Now the drag coefficient, they all increase slightly. And um, the characteristic length sort of plays a role in this, but it is also due to the difference in the flow physics. So there was definitely an increase in the drag coefficient for all of these um, configurations. And then when you have the straw number, now this is where things get a little bit interesting. And that's what I was talking about earlier with the characteristic length. So the characteristic length, um, is involved in the true number. You calculate it by the frequency of whatever's happening. So in this case, the vortex shedding times by the characteristic length divided by the velocity, the free stream velocity. And in this particular case, they use the characteristic length of the smooth cylinder for to non-dimensionalize all of these um, cylinders, regardless of whether it was smooth or it had these practice bumps. Now, the good thing is that Regardless of the cactus bumps, this straw number dropped significantly, which means that there was some effect on the flow physics. It means that it reduced the frequency to some extent of this shedding. However, the, if you factor in the characteristic length, the change, for example, with the H equals 0.08D, which means that the amplitude of each bump was 8% of the diameter, that means that the diameter of, the, of this cylinder is actually 16% greater than the um, smooth cylinder. And if you factor that into the straw number, it takes up a lot of that difference. So not all of the difference that you can see here is just due to the change of flow physics. It's also due to the, the um, diameter, change in diameter of these different cylinders, these, these cactified cylinders. And they actually went into quite, quite good detail. So they looked at the flow physics happening on these cactus, on these cacti cylinders, whatever you want to call them. And it's really cool because they they plotted the vorticity in the in the wake of the circular cylinder with the smooth outside and the cactus cylinder. And in this figure here, they only showed one particular configuration as a representation. And immediately you can see that typically speaking, the maximum vorticity in all these vortices that are shed are lower than the smooth cylinder. So that means that the cactus cylinder is making these vortices not, well, I'll get into that in a second, but they're reducing the vorticity. Now you might say that um, they're reducing the strength of the vortex. That's yet, that's not um, necessarily true. To determine that, you need to determine what the circulation is around each one of these vortex centers, or each one of these vorticity centers. And once you figure out the circulation, you can figure out whether the strength is lower or higher. Now, having said that, the maximum vorticity is lower and um, 
they're about the same size as the, this vorticity range on each side. So there is a very good chance that the, the circulation is lower. So it would be feasible that this the circulation is lower and the vortices are weaker when you put these ribs on the outside. Now, another thing, interesting thing to note, which we can look at definitively, is how many of these vortices there are. So if we were to just count how many vortices there are in the downstream, you'll see that there's a lot more for the smooth cylinder than the cactus cylinder. And that means that the frequency is of the, the vortex shining is greater for the smooth cylinder, otherwise there'll be uh, not as many. So that does agree with the straw number that we saw earlier. And to me, the, the best figure in this whole thing is figure seven. So what they looked at here was the boundary layer profile effectively. They looked at the velocity very close to the surface and for the cacti to see what was going on. And what they found was that in the troughs of these cacti, so between two peaks of these ribs, there was this recirculation zone and then the flow, like sort of the rest of the flow sort of skips over it and makes this separate um, little recirculation zone very close to the, to the surface between the two peaks and then it's sort of segregated. So that was really interesting. So we, we get an idea of what's going on here because um, between these two figures, you can see that they don't actually, these cactus groups don't actually act the same way as helical strikes. With helical strikes, particularly in figure six, you'd see a lot less uh, coherent motion here. So you wouldn't see these very distinct um, vorticity centers, these local maxima occurring and likely meaning that the vortices. You would see more just like a, just a mix of just random stuff all just thrown in together, just a general wake, because that's what helical strikes are supposed to do. They're supposed to break up these vortices from being able to form through not being able to have coherent shedding and getting rid of that. Now, after this, they've looked at the, um, they looked at the CFD and they saw what was going on. So they picked a few different cylinders with these uh, ribs and they put them into a water channel. Before we get to that, I just want to talk about uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Atmosphere Hawk. So I brought this up last podcast. What this does is it actually measures the temperature, barometric pressure and humidity in your experiments. And the reason why you need to do that is because on any given day, these parameters are going to change enough so that the density of air is going to change around three to four percent. And if you don't measure these parameters, the density of air, this error is going to creep through in all of your measurements. So the Ramazan is going to get affected, this uh, lift coefficient, drag coefficient, all your measurements are going to get affected. So if you don't measure these parameters, you've got a, like a three to four percent error in certain, um, in certain uh, measurements for no reason, including the velocity of your free stream. So make sure to pick one of these up. It's very easy to use. You just plug it into your computer via USB and it does, does it for you. It's very accurate. Okay, so back to the podcast. Now, with the experimental setup, they, um, I'll go to these figures here. They sort of just show you they had these cylinders and they put them into the water and they had strain gauges on it to determine what the strain was when the cylinder was flexing. And from there, they could calculate the forces. And they also um, had this really cool way of um, making these cylinders. So they had the, the smooth cylinder and they could put different sleeves on the smooth cylinder to put these different cacti ribs on. And here's just some examples of what they were doing. So these, um, these cacti rib sleeves were able to go over the, in, the inner uh, smooth cylinder to then give whatever um, 
configuration they wanted. Then from there, they tested it and they looked at the vibra response, so the vortex-induced vibration response of a particular uh, cactus-shaped cylinder. And in this case, it's one called R800 0.04. Now, what this means is that they had eight of these ribs around the cylinder, and they had these ribs had an amplitude of four percent of the diameter. Now, in this plot, this has a lot of juicy information here. On the uh, y-axis, it has the RMS of the microstrains. And what this means is that obviously when you have a cylinder and it has some viv, it's moving back and forth. So this lift coefficient is fluctuating. It goes from positive to negative, positive to negative, and so on. So you take the RMS of that, you actually get um, an idea of how much lift there is on this cylinder at a given time, or the maximum. Whether it's positive or negative is sort of beside the point for VIV because it fluctuates between two anywhere. Now in this, and then on the x-axis, they have what's called the reduced velocity. Now the reduced velocity is effectively, it's akin to the um, Schull number. It's just a way of non-dimensionalizing the velocity so that you can compare two different uh, cylinders at two different velocities and still get an idea of what's going on. You can compare them. And the IL means inline uh, microstrain. The CF means cross-flow strain. So the CF is what creates the vortex-induced vibration. The IL is just the bending back of the cylinder, so the, the drag. And they have the circular, the smooth cylinder, which is in black and red, and triangles and asterisks. Sorry, um, in, in black, so the triangles and squares. And then they have the cactus one, which was in the blue and in the red. Now, the IL, the inline force, that's quite interesting to look at. Let's look at this one first. You can see that as the reduced uh, velocity increases up to a certain point, the drag increases accordingly. Now, remember, the inline force is effectively just the drag. And the cactus ribs, they actually reduce the drag dramatically. So you can see at some points, it's like, I don't know, like 3% of what the um, circular cylinder was experiencing. So that cuts out the drag dramatically, but that's really amazing. Then if you look at the cross flow, this is where things get even more interesting. So the smooth cylinder, you see it increases as the velocity increases, and then it gets to the sort of this plateau range and then drops dramatically. I want to talk about this curve first because this is quite interesting. It shows this is applicable to uh, pretty much all cylinders. And this plateau here, between a reduced velocity of about 4.5 to about 10. This is what's called the lock-in range. Now what the lock-in range is, is when the frequency of the vortices that are being shed is very close to the resonance frequency of the cylinder. Now you might say, well, this is over quite a wide um, reduced velocity range. So why is there such, it's not gonna be very, Business frequency, that's only going to happen at one particular point. It's only going to be at one reduced velocity. Well, that's where locking comes into effect. Once the resonance frequency is sort of a, um, close to what this frequency shedding is on the vortices, it's very difficult to actually break out of that resonance uh, frequency. So it locks in. So you either need to really increase the velocity or really reduce the velocity to break out of that. And that's why you see it when you 
you go to a reduced velocity of 11, you get this dramatic drop in the cross-flow strain, the, the VIV effectively, because you're now breaking out of that lock-in. If it wasn't for that lock-in, there would be a much more gradual decline from earlier on because you're not near the, the resonance frequency. And this is where the uh, cactus ribs are really effective. So they dramatically reduce this plateau. So you're only getting this lock-in range for a much shorter um, time periods, much shorter periods. So only from about a reduced velocity of four and a half to about seven and a half. So that's, um, so not only is the cross-flow force less, so the vortex induced vibration is less, there's a smaller lock-in range, which means that you're not getting as much force later on at a higher velocity. So that's all good. Now, after this, they also plotted in figure 13, the micro strain as a function of time for the, these two cylinders as well. And this is just to confirm what you already know, which is it, it um, fluctuates dramatically. So for the inline force, you can see that even that fluctuates a little bit. So for the circular cylinder, the smooth one, it goes from about 150 to about 250 microstrains. And the cactus ribs dramatically not only drops that, but also the, um, the amplitude of that oscillation drops as well. Now with the cross flow, it's only two things that interesting happen. One, you obviously get the um, oscillation happening. So the microstrain for the smooth cylinder goes from minus 200 to 200, which is to be expected because you have the, um, this periodic fluctuation in the, um, the perpendicular force. And the cactus cylinder dramatically reduces that. So instead of having an overall amplitude from like the absolute change of minus 200 to 200, so 400 microstrain range, it's now only from about minus 50 to about 150 or so. That's only 200 microstrain range. The interesting thing is though, instead of being centered around zero, it means that it's the force is consistently on one side more. So you're going to be producing force overall on one side, but also be leaning a little bit. And why that is, I'm not too sure. I have a feeling that it might be that when you put these ribs around the cylinder, if you don't put the cylinder in a flow such that the flow hits it at a point where the two first amplitudes are directly the same distance away from the stagnation point, and so in other words, it's skewed a little bit, it's off center, then the flow is going to separate on one side a bit earlier than the other. And I think that's what might cause this, um, this asymmetry here, but I'm not too sure they didn't go into that. Now, after this uh, experiment, they then looked into uh, what's called tandem cylinders. So in tandem cylinders, you have, it's exactly what it sounds like. So you have one upstream, one downstream, and the flow from hits the first one, it sheds, creates a wake, and then that wake will typically interact with the one downstream. And interesting thing to note is that the downstream cylinder, it won't experience what's called viv, it could experience something called whiv. It sounds the same, but it's, you know, it's a quite a plan of words. <laughs> so the upstream cylinder will experience vortex-induced vibration. The downstream cylinder will experience wake-induced vibration. And it's just the 
a significant difference in how the flow physics plays out. And the reason why this is important is because we haven't actually, as far as I know, we haven't cracked how to mitigate a width. So even if you put helical strikes on the upstream one, the weight coming off of this will still impact the downstream and create this width. So it's still going to be vibrating around. And helical strikes, regardless of whether you put on both, just one or the other, it won't affect, it won't uh, be able to mitigate that. So they wanted to test whether these cactus bumps will mitigate this. And they put these two cylinders at different distances uh, away from each other. So they started off with, I think, there's four diameters downstream, then five, and I think it went to went all the way to eight diameters, I think. And in these figures, this is figure 14, I think it was. Yeah, this is figure 14. They, on the left side, the left column, they have uh, the upstream cylinder. On the right side, they have the downstream cylinder. And one thing to note is the downstream cylinder didn't really have um, much benefit, didn't get much benefit from having these, these ribs along the side, on the outside. With the inline and the cross flow forces, they weren't really affected. So the, the in, in effect, the downstream cylinder still experienced the width. So weight can reduce vibration. So that's not that great, but there was an effect upstream. So if you remember from before, we were looking at just one cylinder um, by itself with either with a smooth outside or with the cactus bumps. When you put the cactus bumps on there, the lock-in range dramatically dropped, if you remember. Well, when you put these two cylinders in tandem, now that sort of mitigates to some extent that reduction. So when it was four diameters uh, spacing, these two tandem cylinders, the lock-in range was actually now extended. So it um, went from about four and a half to about nine, 10 or so. So that's not a great thing, but it is interesting that the downstream cylinder significantly impacts the upstream cylinder more than what you would think. Now that could be because this is such a low velocity, it's low Reynolds number as well, but I don't know. And then when you move it downstream, it uh, also affects this lock-in range. So you can see at five uh, D downstream, now it sort of plat it um, dives down a little bit. So it only takes place over maybe uh, four and a half reduced velocity to about six and a half or so, seven. Then when you go to six diameters downstream, you get this really funky graph. So there's a point where there is a massive lock-in range, massive lock-in, then it drops down a little bit, then it goes back up a, up a little bit. So what's going on there? <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't uh, get into that. And then again, as you go further downstream, you get something similar happening where it sort of plateaus out and then goes down and dips down. So this, and that's where they came to the conclusion. So overall, these cactus bumps performed pretty well, like about similar to helical strikes, not as well, but that's probably because they haven't um, optimized the shape of these ribs so they could make a much better helical strikes have been around said, about 50 years maybe even longer and they've gone through so many iterations and people have really um, optimized them the earlier helical strikes they still weren't as effective as 99 percent they might have been like 60 percent effective or 50 percent effective which is similar to what these are now so with additional investigations it is possible that these 
uh, cactus ribs could perform a lot better than what they are, and you know, maybe even better than helicus drakes. The interesting thing to note is how different they are in how they achieve their goal. As I mentioned earlier, the helicus drakes, they break up this coherent vortex shedding. The cactus bumps, they have this just very different flow physics altogether. There is still this coherence shedding to some degree, but it reduces the frequency somehow, reduces how much um, force is imparted onto the cylinder. And what's interesting to note is, as I mentioned before, there is this upstream and downstream effect. So the downstream cylinder affects the upstream flow physics, which isn't that surprising, but the fact that these cacti, if I go back to figure one, these cacti, they have multiple limbs coming up, like a, sort of like a person with their arms up. No matter what direction the flow is coming in at, it's going to be resulting in one cylinder at least is going to be upstream, the other cylinder downstream. So I wonder if cacti have um, evolved so that they um, overall the force is reduced because they have so many different ones around and they interact in a way that is beneficial to the entire cactus, not just the one cylinder or the other cylinder, one of the limbs or the other limb. And so how, how would I rate this paper? Well, I'm going to introduce a, <laughs> a scale <laughs> called the Jeff Goldblum scale. And it ranges from one Jeff Goldblum, to 10 Jeff Goldblums. And obviously 10 Jeff Goldblums is the, the best. I'm going to rate this paper eight Jeff Goldblums out of 10 Jeff Goldblums. And I know we have people are going to be saying, oh, well, why don't you give it nine Jeff Goldblums? Well, I would, but there's one fact, and that is this was conducted in water, and we all know that air is better. People drown in water. I've never heard of people drowning in air. So for that reason, I'm going to give it eight Jeff Goldblums. All right, <laughs> so that's the end of this podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe. Check out the Atmosphere Hawk, link in the description. And peace out, amigos. <laughs> <laughs>